and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM every single Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm heard we replay throughout the day, so hopefully you're you're hearing us uh, not just for the first time, but many times. I'm one half of your co-host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you this time from Vienna, Austria, back in the European Union. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, David Clement, who's holding down the fort, feeding the doggies, walking the doggies, and living the life in Toronto, Ontario. David, sir, how goes it? It's going. I think it's going probably a little better for me right now, considering you had to travel with a... Uh, with a, with a toddler, you have to tell our listeners what it's like to fly during COVID with a with a small child. Because for for me, that sounds pretty tough. Yeah, it ain't ideal. Uh, so to let the listeners know, um, you know, if you were listening to the Big Talker this week, you'll know that I was in the studio with Joe on Wednesday. Did the whole morning program with him, which was very fun. It was cool to see the studio. Cool to hang out in Wilmington. Uh, really awesome city on the coast, really booming area. Uh, Dave, we might have to team up and, and buy a beach house here soon. I think it's it's looking really nice. Th- yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> I'm 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 in. I'll start saving now. Yes, good. And and actually, it's going to be cheaper than anything you'll find in Toronto, so you'll be fine. <laughs> but um, exactly. Yeah, traveling was insane. Um, I'm already a bit. Um, you know, if I I guess it's jet lag, but you know what I call it, airplane hangover. Uh, we started out doing uh, the drive from Wilmington, Wilmington right to D.C., uh, same day, uh, hopped in the car, went all the way up with a little toddler in the back seat, and uh, basically hopped on the plane, and because this is the COVID times, luckily the the entire airport there in Washington, D.C. was pretty empty, so there really weren't, weren't many lines anywhere uh, security. There wasn't much extra, to be honest. There was a lot of people wearing masks, no doubt. They had to confirm that I had, you know, legal entry into Europe. That was all cool, well and done. Uh, even the lounge was open, uh, thanks to uh, my American Express card. So that was cool. Shout out uh, to but, American Express. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Priority Pass and all those great programs. So thank you, Turkish Airlines, for for holding that. So that meant we could get some food because most of the restaurants in the in the airport are closed. Uh, the only one that was open, Wendy's. This program is brought to you, but not this time. But, I thought you were yeah. going to say Chick-fil-A. No, no. They actually don't have a Chick-fil-A, at least in the international terminal at Dallas. They might domestically. I'm not sure. That's a but, shame. Uh, That's a shame. Yeah, getting, getting on the plane was uh, it was pretty empty. I think we only had 60 people on the entire flight, uh, okay. most of which were either um, European citizens or Americans who have some kind of tie here. Uh, but the mask stuff is tough, man. Nine hours wearing the mask. Uh, you know, you can take it off while you're eating or drinking. But, you know, even when you're sleeping, you have to wear it. And I I was not able to do that. <laughs> that was really tough. I, I think I had, I was tapped on the shoulder at least twice or three times being like, the mask, sir. I, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> and uh, having the small toddler who's jumping off of my, my lap every three seconds, uh, she keeps hitting the call attendant button. So the, the flight attendant comes over, and uh, apparently it seems like I always have a problem uh, when really it's just the uh, <laughs> the fingers of, of the toddler that uh, she's hitting the screen every three seconds. And yeah, trying to make sure she doesn't go storm the cabin, um, you know, start some kind of hostage situation. It's tough, and uh, it's definitely tough during COVID time when you got to wear the mask and you don't have all the amenities and everybody's cleaning everything and looking at you weird if, if the baby coughs once. 
you know, it's a, it's a dangerous time out there. I, I picture I picture you sleeping and your daughter just bouncing around and then an air marshal gets up and he's got a firearm on his belt. And he's like, sir, the toddler. You got to put her away now. This is not an open carry infant <laughs> plane. <laughs> like, okay, buddy. Yeah, that was, it was very tough. And, you know, after a while you're wearing the mask and I, I put on the eye shades because you're trying to get a little bit of sleep. And so I just look like a weird Terminator type person where... You don't see any part of my face except the beard that pops out. So that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I don't envy you on that one. I mean, it's yeah, nice travel to be aside. able to travel, but. That's uh, true. That's true. So right now we'll see. Um, I'll, I think I'll talk about this with Joe on the on his program later, but I did do my first COVID test. Uh, that's something that you need to do upon landing. Haven't had one before. Haven't had any was symptoms. It, have been sick. Haven't done any of that. Was it the nose? But, so it was not as, as bad as the early test. It was a swab in the inside of the cheek, which I've done for drug tests in the past. Part of getting a job, guys, not a routine thing. Um, and then it was the one that was the Q-tip uh, way back in the nose, kind of touching the, the nice, beautiful, sense, uh, I guess, sinus areas. Yeah, they get uh, you almost right in the brain. Oh, yeah. You probably know that a bit better than I do, but not... Yeah. Uh, not that pleasant, good. but it was at a. It was actually a private firm. We there are tests available at the airport, so you can go. But the line was, good God, it was like the entire population of the plane that was there. It was at least forty five, fifty people in line. So we uh, just caught a ride to our apartment and then uh, found a test down the street. Did that, and then uh, we're awaiting our results and we're quarantined at home until that happens. Yeah, that's the law. That's yeah. the law. Got to do that. Actually, there's there's a bit of a scandal going on in uh, in Canada in regards to quarantine because I forget whom it was, but some billionaire came in um, from, I think, the United States or somewhere else. And the rule is, regardless of uh, testing, you have to quarantine for 14 days. Of course. And, and so, but for whatever reason, this person didn't, and news broke out that they didn't. And then everyone was kind of scratching their head being like, did they get some sort of like special exemption from from this? And then the Trudeau government had basically had to figure out what was going on. And then they said, no, the border security agent made a mistake in giving them an exemption, which is really strange because I don't think anybody really gets like, I think it, you require like specific paperwork for that. You can't just like, Sweet talk your way past the do we border know who, guard. Do you know? Do we know who the billionaire guy is? Sorry, I assume uh, it's a man, but I don't know. I, well, I think it was a couple. One second, I can oh, tell. So there's you. a couple people have gotten this. Oh man. Yeah. Well, no, no. It was a couple together. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. There you go. Um, Rules for thee, not for me. Well, yeah. And, we played this rule. And so here's here's the headline: outcry. As super rich Trump donor given permission to avoid quarantine in Canada, um, wow. as if them being a Trump donor has anything to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he sent a, a seven hundred dollar check to Trump in two thousand sixteen. <laughs> Therefore, you know there, he's in bed with the Canadian he, government. <laughs> yeah. So it was Liz or Liz, Elizabeth Uline. Um, who owns the the packaging company U Line, which I've heard of before, um, but apparently she's substantially wealthy and and 
was able to sweet talk her way past a border guard and and having to quarantine. So more uh, more backlash with the Trudeau government over some some weird things that nobody knows why that's going on. So it's a strange wonder, world out there. It is yeah. a, it is a strange world. And then what's funny is on that note, there was actually so there's a rule you can cross the border into Canada or vice versa. Uh, or sorry, you can cross the border from the U.S. to Canada if you say you're driving to Alaska. The Alaska loophole. Yeah, yeah the Alaska loophole. And some family was basically caught crossing in British Columbia and ending up in Banff. And for anyone who doesn't have a map in front of them, that's like a, I don't know, 500, 800 kilometer divergence if you're supposed to be going to Alaska. It's Yeah, uh, it's many hours off the beaten track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they got caught twice. And each time I think they got fined like $2,000. Wow, guys. Hey, yeah. well, if you're if you're part of the super mega rich, uh, that's not much. But, <laughs> Very true. Yeah, more crazy tales uh, from our, our COVID reality. I mean, one thing that we're still continuing on with Consumer Choice Radio is uh, we might be quarantined in our homes awaiting results, or we might be uh, forced at home because uh, many of our businesses are closed, but we're still out there conducting interviews and uh, trying to bring you guys the best in consumer choice topics around the globe and specifically in the United States. And to that end, we have our first interview lined up. Very happy about this one. This is State Senator Jeffrey Brandis. Uh, He's from Florida, and he is out in Pinellas County. That's like Clearwater, uh, St. Pete Beach, out towards Tampa, that area. And uh, we're uh, David and I just kind of reached out because he had been very vociferous on the vape ban and, and very much against it. And he praised Governor DeSantis when he vetoed the bill that would have given Florida a vaping flavor ban. We just kind of reached out. We thought, cool, like mind. Everyone wants to hear from uh, you know a politician to explain a bit his own position. And I got to say, David, I, I was gobsmacked. I mean, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, I think this is a, this is a consumer choice uh, champion already. Yeah, I mean, he checked all the boxes. Like, if we were, like, speed dating politicians, you're like, okay, criminal justice reform, check. Cannabis legalization, check. He's against the nanny state. Ooh, okay, check. He's for a limited government and low taxes, check. Uh, I think we might have a winner here. Yeah, we got a winner indeed. So uh, here's the interview State Senator Jeffrey Brandis from the beautiful sunshine state of Florida. Uh, Dave, would you kick it in a high over deer and, and make sure that we get that clip played? Yeah, Jamie, let's uh, let's roll that interview. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we are here on the phone and we're connected with State Senator Jeffrey Brandis. He represents Pinellas County over there in Florida. And the reason we wanted to bring him on is that he had uh, very interesting things to say about the governor's veto of the flavor ban there. I'm going to be reading from the tweet. Thank you, Governor Ron DeSantis, for the veto of Senate Bill 810. Florida law should not deny individuals seeking safer alternatives from the harms of tobacco. A society that values individual liberties has nothing to fear from the flavors mint or mango. State Senator Brandis, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. 
So let's get to the context of, of this tweet. Uh, you know, we, uh, David and I had mentioned this in the previous show, and I think we've talked about it a lot, and we do a lot of research in the area of vaping and tobacco harm reduction. Uh, tell us about this bill and why you think the veto of it was such a good idea. So it's, an, it's a bill that I fought against from the very beginning, fought against it last year as well when something similar popped up. But it's an area where I, I you know, just completely disagree uh, with the, my fellow legislators on this topic that, that we need to ban flavors. Uh, I could not imagine us getting a bill through the legislature that said we were going to ban alcohol flavors uh, because, you know, kids were more likely to utilize flavored alcohol versus, you know, straight corn moonshine. Uh, that, that just didn't make any sense to me. And we know vaping is for many people, a pathway away from traditional cigarettes. Uh, and so to me, it seemed irresponsible and was gonna create public health outcomes that were, to were, were uh, totally unacceptable to, to force people to move to smoking. Not that we weren't gonna ban vaping, we were only banning flavors of vaping. So we we're gonna force them to only have traditional tobacco flavored vapes, which is something that many people just don't wanna do. Yeah, we, Yael and I have had this conversation quite a bit and, and in many points with legislators is highlighting the, the reason why flavors matter. So youth access is a, is a problem. There are solutions or ways in which that can be dealt with without banning flavors. But it just seems so silly to me that many, yourself not included, uh, don't see the, the irony in only having tobacco flavored vape products. Because if you talk to anyone who has used vaping as a means of getting away from cigarettes, the last thing they want is something that tastes like cigarettes. Right. And, and, and whatever their flavor of choice is, is what allows for them to actually get away from cigarettes, which is I think something that pretty much everyone can universally celebrate. Well, look, we, we know the, the British Journal of Medicine that says that vaping is 95% safer than smoking. Uh, and while it's not completely safe, and we would all agree that, that the best outcome is people kind of stop doing all of that, uh, for, for many people, and we understand this in the science of brain science here as well, is that when we're dealing with one addiction, the, the solution to that addiction is to transfer it to a less harmful uh, substance. And, and so I think that's what vaping is. It's, it's definitely a transition away from what we know is incredibly harmful. We know that people smoke for the nicotine, but they die from the tar. And vaping offers them the opportunity to have an alternative nicotine delivery device and not get the tar, which is what's killing them. Definitely. We're speaking with Sen State Senator Jeff Brandis. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeffrey Brandis. We'll link to that in all of our show notes and descriptions and uh, obviously put that in the links. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your legislative career. Uh, obviously, you're not up for, for re-election right now, as far as I know, but uh, you are someone who is very new uh, to public policy and to being a legislator. Uh, what is your sort of background and what got you interested in the realm of public policy or, or governance? Sure. So I joined the Army seven days after high school. I spent 11 years in the military. I spent 2003, 2004 in Iraq with 101st. Uh, I got back, thought I was going to come back and work for my family business, and they sold it. So I got into politics uh, for, for the, the first time in 2010 in the Florida House, and then ran for the Florida Senate in 2012, and then uh, have, have been reelected a number of times for the Florida Senate. I'm somebody who loves public policy and loves this idea that there's one big area, there's one big idea in every area of public policy. And I really wanna work on that big idea. 
So whether that's in the world of transportation where we see the world getting more shared electric and, and self-driving or automated, uh, we really focus in on those three areas. And if it's in the area of criminal justice reform, which has become a passion of mine, it's really how do we, what are the outcomes that we really want and what are the best practices from around the country that lead to those outcomes? And then how do we, uh, how does somebody who leans libertarian as a Republican in, infuse libertarian thought into the conversation? And, 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 and that often finds me aligning with different groups that tr traditionally wouldn't be seen as Republican uh, group, groups uh, overall. And so I'm somebody who supports adult use cannabis uh, and has advocated for that and written a number of bills. I passed the smokable bill uh, in Florida for medical cannabis a couple of years ago. And so we've been trying to work through uh, and bring kind of a more libertarian, more or less government thought uh, to this process and allow people to have individual liberty, individual freedom wherever we can. And how do you find, so if you're collaborating, let's say with people across the aisle who may agree with you on um, the, the ideas of adult use cannabis, why do you think there's such a gap? And I ask this question because more often than not, I find that we, we will have allies on the left for lack of a better term, uh, who are pro-legalization when we think that's fantastic, but they're very, and they use harm reduction arguments, but they're very anti-tobacco harm reduction and anti-vaping. And so it's like they realize the benefits of getting rid of the prohibition mentality for cannabis, but yet they want to reenact prohibition for things like vaping flavors. Have you been able to, to kind of convince some folks across the aisle that really those are two sides of this, the, the two sides of the same coin? I think ultimately it's a lack of education. They have never really been exposed to vaping. They've been exposed to marijuana in college or as a young adult. And so they have this exposure and they recognize that, hey, it wasn't as bad as you know everybody told me it was gonna be, but now they're going into vaping and they're like, look, I don't really have a context for this conversation and I've never really been educated on it. And frankly, it's, it's arrived almost overnight in many cases uh, to, to their state, it, you know, it, it, yeah, it came kind of gradually, but now it's all here in any grocery store and frankly, any convenience store you go to right behind the counter, there's a row of vape products. Uh, and that, that's not something we'd seen three or four years ago. So for legislators, it's really about getting educated. It's about understanding the safety aspects of it and then understanding the brain science of addiction and why harm reduction is such a powerful tool in helping people manage addictions. And uh, speaking of someone who has a lot of education, it seems as if your uh, your legislative record here is uh, very intense. Uh, just in the last session, uh, just the number of bills that you've introduced or co-introduced, I mean, it's just numerous, numerous, numerous. We'll link to that as well into the, the show notes. But what have been- I'm a what, policy addict. Yes, policy addict. Uh, what have been some of the, I guess, the, the more passionate um, areas of public policy in which you've either collaborated or perhaps introduced a bill? Because uh, believe me, there's plenty of topics here that I think we can discuss. Yeah, so look, I think, uh, you know, our, we're, we're really fascinated about this idea that there's one big idea in every area of public policy. And so we spend a lot of time trying to find that big idea. In fact, when I was first elected, I was kind of overwhelmed by the a variety of different areas of public policy, and I really wanted to learn. And so I went to what I thought for young legislators was the single best source of new ideas and the big and finding that big idea for public policy. And so I watched hundreds and hundreds of TED Talks as a way to just understand from a variety of different angles, how do I find that big idea? 
in the world of self-driving, I came across Sebastian Thrun from Google's conversation about self-driving cars and was captivated by that and thought that was a, an idea that was going to be transformative in the world of transportation. And so how do we position a state like Florida in a conversation on the future of mobility? So worked with Uber and Lyft to bring them to Florida, have now shifted to working on electric vehicles because I think in transportation, that's the single largest shift you and I are gonna see over the next decade is this shift to EVs. And I think when people start to recognize the economics behind an electric vehicle and see the reduction in maintenance, uh, the reduction of, and the ability to standardize your fuel costs, then all of a sudden it makes a ton of sense and we're gonna to start to see massive shifts towards electric vehicles to the point where you can see 25 to 35% of all new vehicles sold by 2030 being electric, which will have a massive shift in the overall uh, economy, whether that be with gas stations or dealers or, you know, and throughout the system. Uh, so, you know, in the world of transportation, I think that's the big shift. But in the world of, you know, but I think that there needs to be this conversation and this shift back towards personal freedom, individual liberty. And that's, if you look at most of my legislation, it tries to take that bent. And where I really got passionate about a number of years ago um, came from a case in South Florida, where we had uh, an individual who was incarcerated in South Florida uh, act out while he was in his prison cell and we had the guards throw him in the shower, turn the shower all the way up and leave him there for a couple of hours. When they came back, he was dead. And besides his screams of pain and agony from being in this hot shower, nobody was ever charged with a crime for that. And I remember sitting in a committee hearing, hearing that conversation go on and looking around and I saw a legislator on his phone. I saw a couple of people not paying attention to that conversation that was happening. And I had this kind of visceral reaction, like I was on a plane at 30,000 feet that was, had an engine out and, and nobody was at the controls of this thing. And so I you know, ran in and worked on, started working on criminal justice reform. And I found out that 85% of Florida's prisons are not air conditioned. And I found out that most of Florida's prisons had no education component of incarceration. In fact, we had largely shifted towards just warehousing people and began to work on uh, working with national groups and state groups to say, all right, what's a better plan? How do we need to fix the education system in the prison system so we can focus on better outcomes? This is all about public safety. In fact, the Florida Criminal Punishment Code today says, no, the, the reason that we have the Criminal Punishment Code is to punish people. Well, if punishment is the only goal, then we're really missing out on what it, what it should be about, which is how do we get better public safety outcomes? And so if you look at one of the pieces of legislation, it simply strikes the word punishment and puts in the word public safety, because that's what our public safety system should be about. And so when we focus on better outcomes, I think the key is what's the research show? What's the data show? And how are, are we aligning the goals of the state of Florida on that best practice uh, that we've gotten from other states? If we think of the states, they're really the laboratories of democracy, right? They can, they can explore all kinds of different ideas. Great. There's nothing that says we can't take the best idea from the other states and implement them in the state of Florida. So why aren't we doing that? And why aren't we doing that in criminal justice reform? And so what I really have found is that most issues need two things. They need a vision and they need a champion. And so how do we constantly come up with, here's the vision that we have for whatever it is we're dealing with, transportation, insurance, education, uh, healthcare, and then who's gonna be the champion in the legislature that's gonna run those best ideas? 
whether that's, you know, on, in medicine, we're going to focus on telemedicine and we're going to expand access to telemedicine and then create a series of advanced practitioners that aren't doctors, but that can deal with the, the massive healthcare needs that we have in the state and provide people at least entry level access to a healthcare provider. Because for most people, they don't have that entry level into the system. The wealthy will always have it. But for those who are not wealthy, they don't even know where to begin the access to the system. And so they most commonly access it through the ER. Well, that isn't the most efficient way to handle that. Um, and, and it overwhelms the ERs. And, and it's by far the most costly medicine, cost, uh, cost that we have in medicine is this funding this ER system that's handling basic healthcare needs. So how do we think about that in a different way? So it's trying to bring these different perspectives to bear and to say, look, we have to cast a vision for what we ultimately want, but let's talk about the outcomes that we want and figuring out what the best practices are to get there. So, on, on, I mean, I, what you just described, I think, is, is Yael and I's political viewpoints probably in three minutes or less. Uh, so you're, you're definitely uh, on the right radio program and talking to the, the right individuals um, on that front. But I'm, I'm curious to know where your philosophical background comes from. Because we all have different stories about why we view the political system the way we do. I mean, your your story about that poor individual in in prison in that shower is obviously a core component of that. But where does your uh, where where does your viewpoint come from in terms of your perspective on individual liberty, on embracing innovation, and and things like that? Sure, I think it comes from two two predominant areas. One, I grew up in a house of faith and, and my faith truly tries to, I try to use that in guiding every, my, my overriding decisions. Um, and so that would be the, the foundational level of, of where I come from. But I think beyond that, while I was in Iraq, I read Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. And I to tell you that that had an oversized influence on my political views because I sat, sat back and I said, wow, I'm probably a libertarian. I'm probably somebody who believes that, you know, we should just have less government. We should let people live their lives um, and, and practice this individual freedom. And, and so as I studied and researched and read more uh, and, and listened to more of what he had to say, I truly believe he was right. Um, that frankly, government's tendency is just to take over everything and that we have to have a group of people that push back against that. And, and that, but that was frankly, the founding fathers were probably libertarians. They believed for the most part in individual freedom. They had seen this oppressive government that tried to get involved in more and more of their lives. And they built a constitution to protect us and provide individual liberties and freedoms. And it's up to us to defend those now because the tendency of man is to, to, uh, is to continue to gain more and more power. But the way the Constitution was written was to keep the power at the citizen at the state level. It's up to us to defend those values. I'm really happy that, you know, we're obviously having you on around election time. Obviously, you're not up. Um, David and I would probably cast illegal ballots in your favor. Uh, but uh, one thing that we've noticed a lot in just studying different jurisdictions and what's happening in state to state is that, man, these local elections and state rules, they matter. And there's not really a focus. You know, we always, always have our focus on the White House, always on the federal government. But there's so much that happens at the state level that actually does impact your life. And uh, a lot of the reforms that you seem to be pushing is seeking a way to alleviate that. 
I was wondering if you could speak to kind of the difference between the, the local government perspective and then this, this, I don't know if it's infused through culture, maybe it's through our media, just this total focus that we have just on federal government and who happens to be in DC. Uh, well, look, you have to understand the media has a nationwide art, you know, uh, audience. And so they're going to be focusing on these national issues. What I don't think most people appreciate is how much work and how much of the laws that they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis are from the state. Uh, and so I think that it's, it's um, you know, oftentimes what I find is most people don't know what I do. They, as much as I tell them, as much as I've been elected for now a decade, they, they don't know because they're not focused on that because the media doesn't talk about that on a daily day-to-day -day basis. They want to talk about Washington issues, the amount of people that think I'm a U.S. senator and not a state senator and send me every time some, some national issue comes up, send, want to send me an email so I, can, so I can, you know, fight this or do that. That's great. But I'm trying to lower your insurance costs in Florida. I'm trying to fix a criminal justice system. I'm making, I'm trying to make sure that you're not stuck in a traffic jam uh, every day. That's not something that your federal politicians are working on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, they're, you know, so I think it's it's incumbent upon us to, to to think about our state laws, and to be and to be advo advocating to our local legislators the key priorities that we have for our state, and and it's something that we don't see a lot of. Um, the amount of phone calls that I get that say, "Hey, I just want to talk policy for a little bit and try to understand your thinking or help you share a vision of what I have from our area," um, are probably I could count on a, on my hand in, in the amount of times that I've had that conversation with somebody in the last 10 years that just randomly called me and said, let's talk about public policy. Most people have, I have this problem I want to deal with, you know, I, I have this specific issue with this agency that I need to deal with, and that's why they're calling us. But I think people need to, one, know their local elected officials' names, and two, meet with them and help share and cast and shape the vision they have for their community. Yeah, I think that that is such an important, um, an important gap across, I mean, across the country for that matter, where you have all of these questions of, okay, like everything from what the tax rate on your gas is going to be to if you can get an Uber to if you're vacationing in Florida and you have access to, let's say, Airbnb or all sorts of other things that really impact your, your daily or weekly life. A lot of those decisions are made by folks like yourself and not Trump or Biden. And, and regardless of where someone stands, you see this all the time. It'll be like, oh, well, Biden, if Biden gets elected, he's going to ruin America. And it's like, well, the president really only goes so deep into, um, into state policy. And then people on the flip side will say, well, if Trump gets reelected, the country's going to fall apart. And it's like, well, I don't, I think people maybe overestimate the, the power of the president in some of those personal issues and they underestimate the importance of collaborating, working with folks like yourself. So it's a huge, huge gap there that we, Yael and I work in terms of talking to consumers is getting them engaged on, on some of these issues locally and, and highlighting that importance. Um, so, so thank you for, for, pointing that out to our listeners because I'm sure there's going to be a few people who do listen to that and go, oh, yeah, wait a second. It is my local town councilor or my local state legislator who's ultimately going to make the call on that. Yeah. I think it's just important that people build a relationship with their local elected officials and it's not a hostile relationship. Even if we disagree, we can be cordial about our disagreements. Um, I, you know, I often go on Facebook and post something controversial and say, let's discuss and I'll spend 
an inordinate amount of time answering and questions and addressing those types of issues in the background uh, because I want people to be able to have a conversation and I frankly want to be able to understand their perspectives and thinking on, on some of the difficult issues that we're facing. We've been speaking with State Senator Brandis from Florida, from Pinellas County. Uh, really some great topics that we've been able to cover. Uh, can't do the full hour, but uh, we'd love to have you back on. Uh, Mr. State Senator, I think you, you bring up some amazing ideas. Hopefully we can work with you in the future and see what we can do in Florida and beyond. And I think, David, we're going to brand him a Consumer Choice Champion. No doubt. Yes. Yeah. Consumer <laughs> Choice Champion and friend of the show. There you go. So State Senator, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks. It's been great to be with you. And I'll just leave you with kind of one challenge and hopefully your listeners will do it, which is go reach out to your local state elected officials and have a conversation on policy. Pick a topic and meet with them or call them on the phone, do a Zoom, whatever. But, uh, but it's so important that you build that relationship uh, over time with those individuals uh, and because they need your feedback, they need your guidance, and they need you to help cast that vision for the future. Thanks. back here on Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Uh, what an amazing interview. State Senator Jeffrey Brandis. This guy is someone to follow. Um, you guys, you know, you might remember the name Rubio. Rubio was himself in the in the state legislator in Florida and eventually made a name for himself. Uh, so maybe uh, State Senator Brandis is someone we got to keep our eye on as well. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think both of us would love to see that. It would... I would love to see, I mean, there, there seems to be some growing questions on what the future of the Republican party looks like. And if it looks like guys like Brandis and our previous guest, uh, Lenny McAllister, then I think the Republicans are well suited, uh, for the future. And so, um, yeah, maybe, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll see him run for Congress or for the Senate in Florida. That would be, that would be exciting. Yeah, and, and uh, I think one of the coolest things that we heard about is a lot of the topics that we cover, a lot of stuff on the sharing economy, a lot of stuff on vaping and harm reduction, and then criminal justice reform and even legalizing cannabis. I mean, this guy, as David said, ticks all the boxes, really brings a fresh perspective. A guy who's also philosophically inclined, you know, he doesn't come up with these ideas willy-nilly and they're not just sort of uh, put on paper and then he just goes with them. Yeah, he's actually taken the time to think about it, think about the role of government, why the government should put out some legislation on X or Y topic, and his legislative record is also incredibly impressive. Um, so he's not some backbencher, you know, he's really leading a lot of the fights there in the state of Florida. And, uh, you know, every single state has these kind of champions, but as we mentioned, there's so much focus on the federal you know, big picture government, federal government, Congress, you don't really know what's happening at the state level a lot of the times. And I think that's why the big talker is super useful because we hear a lot about local politics here in New Hanover County, but also in Raleigh and across the state of North Carolina. And then we hear a lot about local jurisdictions and regulations that they're putting up. So uh, awesome interview. Great guy. We'll definitely get him on a good friend of the show and consumer choice champion. Yes. Yeah. Um, All right, David, um, you've thrown some clips at me for this week. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we 
we try to put together a, a good show that mixes stuff up. I have not listened to these. Okay. Um, so I don't know what direction you're going into. I just see the titles. Yeah. Uh, but I've been I've been kind of you know in, in uh, planes, trains, and automobiles all week, so I haven't caught up too much on the news. Hit me with these. What, what uh, what's first up on the docket? Okay, so we're gonna flash back. We're gonna start with Hillary Clinton. We're gonna flash back to one of her atrocious radio interviews from the last election, which I thought was just so bad. Um, So we'll quickly play that clip. And the background on that is at the time, Hillary was on a a morning show on a hip hop or R&B radio station. Um, Was it the Breakfast Club? Was she on the Breakfast Club? I forget exactly what it was, Um, but she was with African-American hosts and uh, I'll let this speak, the, the clip speak for itself. Uh, and it's relevant because Joe Biden just basically did the same thing. All right. No more questions? They said no, she has to go. What's, what's something that you always carry with you? Hot just- sauce. Really? You, yeah. Yeah. Really? Are you getting information right now? <laughs> Hot sauce. Hot sauce wow. in my bag, Swag? Hot sauce. Really? Yes. Now, listen, yes. I just want you to know people are going to see this and say, okay, she's pandering to black people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it working? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, that cackle, that laugh. Yeah. I don't miss those days. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> they're, they're... so it, it was it was a Breakfast Club. Yeah. It was uh, Charlemagne okay. the God, I think, who was doing the, the main questions. Uh, the same guy... Joe Biden was interviewing and said, you know, if you, uh, if, if you vote for Trump, you ain't black, you know, this kind of thing. So there you have Hillary. I mean, she pretty nakedly says pandering to black people. Is it working? Is it working? <laughs> and so we're going to tee up the next clip. This is Joe Biden. He's speaking at a Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, and he comes out and he starts playing something on his phone into the microphone. Um, so we'll play this clip and, and go from there. Jamie, play that one. El vicepresidente, I'm honored to present vice president and the future president of the United States, Joe Biden. A lot of claps. Please clap. We're unsure what to do. I just have one thing to say. Hang on here. <laughs> All right. I'll tell you, my boy. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if I had the talent of any one of these people, I'd be I'd be elected president by acclamation. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, hello and happy Hispanic Hispanic Heritage Month. Wow, so, what an awkward so, grandpa moment. So he comes, <laughs> he comes out. And he's like, "Oh, hold on, guys, I got something to play." And he plays like ten seconds of Despacito, <laughs> as oh, wow. as if that's like, "Hey, guys, like, he's one of you, right? I like this guy. Please like me." So the intern went up to uh, Hispanic playlist, hit shuffle. First thing that came up, 
Hey, I'm going to give you the whole load today. How's this? Well, I mean, what's what's also hilarious is it's, I mean, yes, that was a popular Spanish language song like four and a half years ago. <laughs> so it's not even new music. So who, I, 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 again, this goes back to when we talked about Nancy Pelosi. Like, who in the room is going, all right, Joe, what you're going to do, I'm going to load this YouTube clip on your phone. You're going to come out and you're going to play Despacito for 10 seconds. They're going to love it. Like, who is telling Hillary Clinton, tell the African-American host you have hot sauce in your purse. Do it. <laughs> like, just terrible, terrible advice. Joe Biden, pay me and I will make sure you don't make these dumb mistakes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The question to ask is, A, did you know this song before yesterday? No. And then B, for Hillary Clinton is... All right, you say you got some, whip it out. You got Texas Pete in there? Let's see. Open it up. I mean, Hillary Clinton strikes me as the type of person who finds mayonnaise spicy. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I highly doubt that she's got, I highly doubt that she's ever put hot sauce on anything. Yeah, well, we're starting to get into the culture wars. Uh, what are we, uh, yeah, we're mid September, so things are going to start ramping up. Uh, there's a there's a good uh, YouTube comedian that my brother showed me of uh, you know what it's like to to listen to someone talk about politics, and the guy's just making fun of. He's like, "All right, red or blue, split the room. Which are you? Time to time to decide." Uh, this kind of thing, and uh, the culture war will begin very very shortly. Uh, we're definitely going to see this ramp up. There's going to be all kind of cultural things. Mm -hmm. Celebrities are going to come out and endorse. Um, you know, hopefully a lot of the public policy isn't lost in the mix, but, you know, maybe we should have even <laughs> forgotten that battle a while ago. I don't, it's going to rise to personalities again. It's going to rise to whatever the news of the day, some big scandal. It's the California wildfire and it's Trump's fault or whatever is Biden's fault. Ah, oh, goodness. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to the debates. Bring on the debates. I think we should have eight debates. All of them should be moderated by Joe Rogan. And they should all be four hours long. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you can do it. it. You know, it might be nap time at some point, so that I don't know. That might be a bit tough to swing, but yeah, this is the the new avenue. I mean, we're the 21st century. You know, you don't really need to have all the old gizmos of doing these debates. You can easily do a Rogan podcast, or I mean, just do a meet the but, press thing in the morning. Who cares? Did, Zoom in, do something. Did you see that the whole Joe Rogan story? Well, I saw the story come up, yeah. and I know that Trump had, I think he retweeted that and was like, I'm all in, or something yeah, like this. Yeah, he did. This. Someone so. was like, there should be a four-hour Lincoln-Douglas-style debate, which is basically just like an open conversation. Um, so it's not like five minutes, five minutes, you get 30 seconds, you get 30 seconds where you're talking. Do you imagine how hard that would be with those talking points that they've like had programmed into them? No way they could last that long. <laughs> Just that just brings me back to Robo Rubio. Yeah, I do think Trump would. I I mean, look, doesn't matter your politics. I think he would shine in that opportunity. He's just good at that. Yeah, freewheeling. I mean, if you watch any of his rallies, you know that's where he's comfortable. He hates giving these little press conference things that he has to, you know, whatever some program he's got to unveil or you know visiting some foreign dignitaries. He's terrible at that. But give him the open mic. Yeah, I mean, I think he's... Give him the platform, he's all in. I think in. he's the only president to ever do, like, a 75-minute press conference. 
I don't, I don't oh, yeah. think any any president in one sitting has ever done that long of a press conference, and so that would. Yeah, certainly and he probably had me. to stop because it was like you know the top of the news, or, or you know there's some big show that was previewing and <laughs> basically for ratings. The, they the, had to yeah, the, like the press conference was so long that the news cycle changed before he finished yeah. it. Uh, Mr. Trump, your favorite show on Fox is coming up. All right, guys, it's over. I gotta this week. go watch Tucker. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, there'll be much more of that in the coming weeks. Uh, let's look to some articles. Finally, I, I did. We did get some stuff published, David, that I thought we we'd come back to. We did uh, something we that did. we did discuss with. You mentioned Lenny McAllister earlier, uh, friend of the show, uh, someone who is a rising star within the conservative movement, um, Republican Party. He's based out there in Pittsburgh. And sort of based on his advice of where to go out, we decided to put together an op-ed and talk up the game of Pennsylvania and cannabis legalization. Uh, This is maybe a big story of the year that has not really been covered. And uh, we took to the pages of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette with sort of uh, some ideas Mm -hmm. on legalization in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's what's interesting about... Pennsylvania and anyone who's been to Pennsylvania will probably have a little bit of PTSD if they've ever tried to buy alcohol in that state. Um, Cause it's just a nightmare. Like I, I hate Ontario system. It's brutal, but Pennsylvania is just a unique level of awfulness. And the governor, unfortunately looks like he's suggesting that if they do legalize cannabis, that they would go under that kind of state run model, which is, just really bad for everybody involved. Terrible for consumers. Probably be pretty good for those in the black market because it's easier to it's easy to compete with with those store hours and all of those rules and restrictions that will obviously inflate costs. So yeah, it was uh, it was good to get those ideas on paper um, and have them published in the Post Gazette so that hopefully some legislators and some voters can um, can keep pushing forward with legalization, but realize that. In order for it to be successful, you have to do it with a light touch. You can't, you can't kind of come in with the bulldozer of government and expect to have good results. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of movement here. There are some very progressive-minded people who are in the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Also, a lot of more libertarian-leaning Republicans who are actually very favorable to this. But where the fault line will be is who will control the trade? Will it be an open market? Will it be private retailers? Or will it be much like the liquor trade in the state of North Carolina and liquor trade in Ontario and many other states that it's a state store run by the government? Uh, that's going to be a big debate. I you know, I hope there's going to be a lot more debate on there. I think David and I have put together a good perspective with lessons from different states and countries that have implemented legalization and where these kind of monopolies have not worked. Uh, Pennsylvania tends to be you know, very excited about monopolies. They're not very good. (laughs) They don't provide very good prices for consumers. They don't provide you good options and uh, just give you even more headaches. So the the DMV liquor stores that that exist across the state of North Carolina, just imagine that with cannabis, and you do have that in other jurisdictions, and hopefully Pennsylvania will not go that way. Uh, We'll see if if this becomes a, a bigger issue. I mean, they're kind of talking about legalization of cannabis more as a a sort of short-term benefit to the economy so they can actually get people back to work. And hopefully with all the lockdowns and COVID madness, uh, this will be some kind of 
either antidote or, or small help for the time being. I don't know. It's As you know, David, it takes a long time to implement this stuff and get the regulations right. So it's probably not going to be the, the panacea that they think. No, no. And what's going to happen is they're going to forecast that it's going to make bil- the X billions of dollars in revenue. But for every additional piece of legislation or, or regulation that they add in, they're just going to chip away at that forecast. The best way to actually generate money is to leave it in the private in the private sector with as light of a touch as possible. And obviously, you got to tax it. So generate your revenue off of that rather than trying to have the state sell cannabis and take a margin and inflate prices and all that silly stuff. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed they get it right. We'll see. The jury is still out. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Not every day you tune in to your local radio station and hear two guys blabbing on about cannabis legalization. But that's what we do. That's the message that we bring, and that's what we do at Consumer Choice Center. Uh, our website is consumerchoicecenter.org. You can find all the other work that we're doing with our colleagues. Uh, a lot of stuff that we're doing in the next couple of weeks that we'll probably preview in the next shows to come. Uh, in the meantime... There's one topic, David, that you and I have mentioned a little bit. I did get to talk about it a little bit with Joe as well, and that's housing. Uh, housing, pro-density, pro-development. Places around the country are booming, and you have all these arguments about how to provide affordable housing to certain people in different communities. Uh, in the state of North Carolina, Charlotte is one of these communities. It's one that I'm familiar with, having grown up outside of it. I uh, just came from Charlotte a couple days ago, fresh off the plane, still feeling the uh, the dust in my eyes. And uh, the article that I penned is for the weekly alternative newspaper, sort of the leftist uh, rag, as some, conser- uh, some conservative radio host would say, um, about making Charlotte a Yimby state or a Yimby city. Yimby meaning yes in my backyard, meaning that we take our zoning laws, we chuck them by the wayside, we allow more development, more building. That's actually how you're going to have more affordable homes. You don't necessarily need government programs or government housing. Uh, most of the of the cases, the, this is actually going to lead to very bad results and uh, really not going to do well for ordinary people trying to move there. And it's just going to create another mm-hmm. sort of racket, another monopoly, and uh, it's going to raise prices. And, and usually the quality of these places as anyone can attest, and any projects that have been put up are not very good. So pro-density. I know, David, you've been making these arguments across Canada as well, mm-hmm. where the housing, I think housing is, has more problems there. There might be more of a shortage um, places sure. like Vancouver and Toronto. Yeah, Van- Vancouver and Toronto are especially bad. I mean, you have you have city councillors in Toronto who, I mean, it, it pretty much seems like 80% of what they stand for is opposing development um there was a proposal to welcome to thunder yeah Dome. it's uh there was a proposal to put a i think it was like 20 stories which in toronto is really not much um i mean it's like new york city so 20 stories and it was going to take up a a corner block um where a very famous dive bar is and this one city councillor who self-declares some who, who declares himself as a champion for affordable housing um, basically is like, no, we have to oppose this. Like, I like this bar. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like what yeah that's that's nimby that's not in my backyard yeah. we don't want anything being built around there yeah it's like that doesn't make um, any sense and what's funny is it, there are some good examples internationally of cities who do this right so tokyo does a very good job um and some of the numbers here are actually pretty staggering so like the yearly building permits in the thousands so san francisco the bay area it'll be like five thousand building permits a year New York City, it's about 20,000. LA, it's about 24,000. Tokyo is 142,000 building permits. And it's actually one of the only market. First, it's the, one of the densest places on earth in terms of population. And two, housing prices have actually decreased over the last 15, 16 years. Um, so it just goes to show you that part of your affordable housing strategy has to be to build. And then when you're done building, build some more. And then when you're done with that build, build a little bit more just in case, and then you're good. And th this is all local politics. You know, this is this is what your city councilors are voting on, your county commissioners. It's these zoning laws that actually restrict what can be built. So in many areas, it can only be commercial buildings. It can only be single family homes. And that's the kind of stuff that we need to change and make more open so that we can have better communities. And yeah, it is pretty cool to have mixed use. Joe gave me an example over there at the Big Talker studio. I looked uh, just across the street when I was in the studio behind the mic, and there's this amazing building, kind of mixed use. You got businesses on the bottom, you got apartments all up top, kind of a high rise. It looked beautiful. I'm like, wow, they allowed that in the zoning? He said, well, you know, there's a couple of counselors who uh, kind of lobbied for that project. They changed the zoning, and they went ahead and bought, you know, three apartments for themselves. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what happens. another funny example in San Francisco is the planning, uh, the planning commission. Um, they'll, they'll host a, a discretionary review, which is where they like officially review something that's been submitted to be built. Uh, and the one example from, from June is there, there was a planning commission doing a discretionary re review filed by an ice cream shop to prevent another ice cream shop from opening across the street. And so you have city, they're, they're taking public comment, public comment on whether or not an ice cream shop should be able to rent a commercial space, which is obviously already agreed to, and open up an ice cream shop. It's like, what, you're just, if that's what your local council is doing, they're just glorified babysitters. This is ridiculous. Wow. I mean, th there's a lot of scoops of corruption there that are that are bubbling up. That's not, that's not good. So, yeah, we'll be able to cover that more uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. And if you have examples, you know, from your cities or your areas, uh, whether it's out here on the radio in Wilmington or on the podcast version that we put up on our website, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, if you have examples in your town, uh, Consumer Choice Center, we're very happy to, you know, actually get into these public comments and, uh, make a very principled stand for more density, for upzoning, for changing our zoning laws. Um, I even looked up the history of zoning laws, David, and many of these started in the Northeast mostly because of racial codes. Yeah, uh, They didn't want African-Americans living in certain areas yep. or didn't want Jews living in a certain area. And these kind of morphed into, into this strange thing where we're dictating what kind of buildings to be built which again, you do need in some areas because of how the towns are, if you have historic districts. But mm -hmm. again, just to willy-nilly block entire parts of, 
construction or what people can even do with the buildings they own or the land that they own is, is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm not one to throw the racism word around a lot. Um, but if you look at the history of a lot of these zoning regulations, that's exactly what they are. Um, they, they were a way for local governments to try and kind of reinstall whatever version of segregation they could get away with. Um, so really ugly stuff. Um, obviously, that has that has had a historical, uh, historically negative impact on minority communities, and it's just such a shame that the people who are supposed to be carrying the banner for progress and for diversity and inclusion, um, those traditionally on the progressive side of politics, can't see that they're silly zoning laws and their nimbyism obviously has um, negative racial implications. And so, um, yeah, huge, huge problem, huge problem there. Forget NIMBY, let's go YIMBY. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, Thanks again.